so that um, those words of that song um, in part come from this chapter three of Habakkuk. And as a quick recap, um, Habakkuk uh, came to the Lord crying out for his intervention and for him to act because people of God, the Judah, uh, the tribes of Judah had uh, fallen so far away from God and were not living as his people. Um, and Habakkuk was crying out for God to bring them back to do something about this. Um, God replied and Habakkuk was not particularly happy, was not happy at all about God's response, which was that the Babylonians were going to come and invade. And this presumably would bring about uh, repentance on the part of Judah. But Habakkuk wasn't going to take that line down. He thought that God was was misguided, perhaps unwise to do this. And he cried out again and, and said, you can't mean this. Uh, this would spell destruction for your people. You can't surely be going to do this. Uh, and then God gave him a vision, which we looked at last week, a vision which was guaranteed that one day his justice would reign, that there would be a reversal of fortunes, the tables would turn, and the oppressors and those who had rebelled against God would receive judgment and just there would be justice through the, throughout the earth. And Habakkuk resolved to wait for this. And now we come to chapter three, where we see Habakkuk's sort of final destination on this, this part of his journey of faith with God, having started out uh, with a complaint and with real distress and frustration and confusion, we now get to Habakkuk as he responds finally to God and he prays a prayer to God uh, right at the start of chapter, uh, chapter three. I'm going to share this with you. Um, Paul, give me a thumbs up if you can see what you should be seeing on the screen. Excellent, thank you. It's <laughs> not always clear from my end. Um, so Habakkuk, um, we're going to start in chapter three and read together. This is the prayer of Habakkuk. And the prayer is actually really short. It's just that, uh, that second verse. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is his prayer, that's his actual prayer, that God would act as he has done in the past, that he would act. And that within that acting um, and his justifiable anger, that God would still be merciful towards his people. That's, that's in a sense, that's the entirety of his prayer, but he doesn't stop there because he overflows into this, uh, it's like a psalm really. There are characteristics about what comes next that is, makes it very much like a psalm. And he, he writes this, uh, meditation, this reflection of God um, in the form of a psalm that comes in the next few verses. Now, um, if we look at these, we see images of God's power and his sovereignty throughout the next few verses. Um, and we'll see this not only looking back and seeing what God has done in the past, but we'll see that, that Habakkuk has a sense of this is who God is right now. And there's also an element of the future, because we've seen in, in Habakkuk 2 how God promises he will act with justice in the future. That time will come. It might be delayed, but it won't. It might be a long time coming, but it won't be delayed in God's term, terms. And he will act with justice in the future. And this is reflected 
in the Hebrew language, which doesn't come across, I say this so often, doesn't come across in our English translations, or at least some of them. If you were to do a comparison across Bibles, you'd see some um, English translations try and get um, get this, this sense of the mixing up of past, present and future tenses um, in this passage. Others just don't, and they just put it all in the past tense. But actually the way it's written is that there are parts of it that are are written about the past. So Habakkuk, from where his viewpoint, he's saying, this is what you have done, God. I remember you did this. You acted like this. This is, this is how you, you behaved. These were your awesome deeds. There are other places where he is saying, God, you are getting ready for this. I see you doing this. And there's a sense, therefore, that God will act in the future. So I'm going to read, I'm going to continue reading from the NIV, which puts everything into the past tense. But please bear in mind that it's not that obvious in the Hebrew that actually it's, it's about past, present and future. And there's all of that included in the text. The other thing to note before we plough into this, this psalm about God's sovereignty is that it's revealed um, on different levels. It's revealed in, uh, in different um, dimensions almost. We see something of the place in which this will take place, the manner in which it will take place, and the time scale. Um, so bear that in mind, because as we start reading from, from verse 3, we see his sovereignty. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. There's the worldwide scale of this sovereignty, this glory that is seen. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. That's there's something about the manner in which God's sovereignty and his glory and power are shown. And these are classic symbols of God's God showing up to his people. We, we see something of lightning and of, of, of light being in there. We, we read something of plague, which we're not comfortable with, and it's not something we're familiar with, but in ancient times, that was part of God showing up. Um, and, and also across the nations of the region, gods, uh, plagues were part of the gods' um, intervention and action in earth, on earth. So we have lightning, we have plague, we have earthquake. Um, so we have those images, classic symbols and signs of God showing up. Carrying on um, in verse six, the second half of verse six, we get something about the time scale. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. And when you look around and you see uh, how the earth is created. You see the mountains and we think about just how long they've stood there. They look and they symbolize something of um, the firmness of, of and the his historic nature of, of the earth and how it's been formed. And it seems to have been around forever and, and it won't just disappear. In this vision of God's sovereignty and God's power, Habakkuk recognizes that even the mountains might crumble at God's very appearance or his words at a look from him that God himself will continue uh, forever. So we get something of the image of God's power and his sovereignty, um, not only in the place that he will occupy right across the world, but in the, the manner and the timescale, that eternity, the eternal dimension of his glory. 
and then we go on and we get something of the Exodus story. And the Exodus story is a really important story. It's a foundational story for the people of God and it shapes their identity. And it's repeated throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New. It's a story that um, the people of God go back to time and time again. It is so foundational um, alongside creation and recreation. It's one of those stories that defines who they are and defines how they relate to God and how they understand who they understand God to be. So listen out for those clues. I've listed them there. Um, You'll, you'll hear something that might make you think about the crossing of the Red Sea during the Exodus, something about the conquering of lands, and particularly an episode that happened in Joshua that you might, you might call to mind. Um, there's something in here that we'll, we'll hear about the destruction of the enemies of God, uh, God's people, as they're pursuing them. And there's something in here as well about the Davidic king and deliverance coming through the Davidic line. So... Reading on from verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with the rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by and the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glinting of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I think as you hear that, you will, you'll have picked up something of, um, of the miraculous escape from, from Egypt, from Pharaoh. And remember, in the language of the Old Testament, Babylon comes to symbolise nations that are in opposition to God, cruelty and, um, uh, and real um, idolatry. And, and all of that is, is, Babylon becomes an archetype for that type of nation. Pharaoh becomes an archetype for that kind of leader. And so the Egyptians are sort of tied in the same brush as Babylon. There are two nations there that are very often used to talk about um, nations that are in opposition to God. And Pharaoh being the archetypal leader of such a nation. So we have quite a lot in there um, that I think you'll recognise as being sort of harking back to the Exodus story. What you won't have noticed from the reading from the NIV here is that the second half of that, most of that was actually in the Hebrew present tense. So God, you, your bow is ready for action in verse 9. You commission the many arrows Torrents of water sweep by, the, deeps, the deep roars and lifts its head on high. There's, the whole of that last section is in the present tense, as if God's about to do it again. And this is Habakkuk's sure belief that God will do something again. In the middle of that, we have this, um, this image of God in amongst all of this sort of warrior-like 
battling on behalf of his nation, we read in verse 13, you came out to deliver your people. Well, actually, it's, it's present tense. So you come out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. There's confidence there that God will rescue his people, that despite the threat of the Babylonians, despite their reputation and what they're likely to do to the people, there is still that sense in which God will preserve his nation. He will keep his promise. There will still be a people of God. But it's also interesting here. I, I think it's really interesting that there's reference here to the Davidic king. And whenever that happens, as Christians, we read that and we think, aha, are we talking about Jesus here? Now that verse, verse 13, you came out to deliver your people. To deliver is to save. And we know that Jesus' name means he saves. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. It's the same name and it means he saves. He saves your people. That's the Jesus reference. He saves your anointed one. And we know that anointed one is the Messiah, is in Greek, Christ. So right in the center there, we kind of get reference to Jesus Christ right in the middle of Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk's psalm of God rescuing his people. Now, Habakkuk wouldn't have known that's what he's saying. What I'm saying is that as those of us who live on the far side of Easter, the far side of Pentecost, we can look back and see the spirit of God inspiring and pointing ahead to Jesus. That in the midst of all this hope that God will come and, and fight and be a warrior God who rescues people, there is actually that rescue that perhaps refers to the anointed one of David's line. And we recognize that as Jesus. And he did conquer. He did um, claim the ultimate victory. He did uh, indeed deliver not only his people, but the whole world and all of those who will accept, accept him. There is deliverance. So it's, it, I think it's quite exciting whenever we come across these references that are actually messianic references, then um, it's great to pause and think, think about them. So Exodus is there. Um, I hope you picked up on quite a bit of that. And you might say, well, that's all very interesting, Eleanor, but what's the point? Why? Why is it so relevant that Exodus keeps cropping up in the Old Testament? And it does. It's not just Habakkuk. It's lots of different Old Testament writers again and again, and even picked up in the New Testament. And that's because the Exodus story, as I said, is it's foundational to who the Israelites are and who they know themselves to be in relationship to God. And it's told again and again or referred to or echoed repeatedly as a way to inspire faith. After all, when you remember the faithfulness of God, it enables you to be to trust him and in his faithfulness for the present day and for the future. So the story is, is repeated to inspire faith. It's also repeated to encourage his people to pray for God to act, which is exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. Right at the start, his prayer was, um, I remember your deeds. You do them again, repeat them in our day. Lord, this is how you acted in the past. Please, will you do it again? Will you save us one more time? So the story of Exodus is repeated because it encourages God's people to pray for God to act again, knowing that he has done this in the past. It's also a great reminder to God's people, and I include us in that, that we are dependent on God. From the original Passover, that they were spared the visit from the angel of death, through to them escaping miraculously from Pharaoh through the waters of the Red Sea, his provision for them in the wilderness 
and he's leading them finally into the promised land. All of that was dependent on God. They were utterly dependent on him to give them the very food that they needed, the water that they needed, everything. And it's a reminder to God's people, whoever we are in whatever age we're living, the Exodus story is still relevant because it reminds us that we are utterly dependent on God, lest we forget that. And um, it's important for God's people now, as much as then in the Old Testament, to be reminded that you were once, you were once slaves in Egypt, you were once like this. And the reason for that is that um, God wants his people to have empathy, to show compassion and understanding and hospitality and generosity to, towards the foreigner, the stranger, the, the, the orphan, the fatherless, the widow. He wants his people to be those who are reaching out and welcoming in. That is his intention. And if you actually read, uh, I think it's probably in Deuteronomy, it might be the, the version of Exodus, when you read of the um, commandments, the Ten Commandments particularly, there are reference in, references in there as to how people should live. And sometimes God says, do it like this, or be kind to the stranger or to the foreigner who comes into your midst. For you were once a foreigner in a land. You remember, remember your existence or your ancestors in Egypt. Remember this. So it's supposed to shape how we live now, this Exodus story. And although it's not our story as Gentiles living in the 21st century, it is because we are the people of God and God has acted like this in the past. And we are to remember it because it can shape how we, how we grow our faith uh, for the future. So where did we get to in Habakkuk chapter 3? We got to chapter, uh, verse 16. So we've had, the, um, we've had the meditation, the psalm that speaks of God's sovereignty and his glorious acts in the past. And now we come to Habakkuk the man facing what he knows now is inevitable. God is not going to change his mind. He has wrestled with God. He's said to God what is on his mind, that he does not agree. And he's done that wrestling that we talked about in uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he's come to a point where he understands, actually, this is how God is, has answered my prayer. It may not be the answer I wanted, but I know he's not going to change his mind. We've, we've, we've done that enough now. So he knows the Babylonians are going to come. He knows the Babylonians' reputation. And I think it's fair to say he's terrified. Listen to how he describes himself in verse 16. I heard, so he heard what God has promised will happen. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. In other words, my legs turned to jelly or my legs went from under me. He is sick to the stomach thinking about what's to come. There is real fear here because there is a real threat and there is real danger and it looks pretty bleak. But the juggernaut of bleakness might be heading in one direction here as he thinks about what the Babylonians are going to do. But there's this wonderful word, yet. Um, and it's really powerful in Hebrew language. It's like slamming on the brakes of that, uh, that juggernaut and changing direction. So he's saying, this is all true. This is how I feel. I am terrified. Yet, yet, and here comes the breaks and the change of direction. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. He is sure 
that even though the, the immediate future is terrifying, he is sure that the vision he has seen, where God has promised justice, he is sure that day will come and he will wait for it. And, and the only reason we can give for this yet that he speaks of is because he believes God's word. He's taking God's word to be true. And when God has said, I will bring justice, Habakkuk has said, right, I believe, I believe you will. And because of that, there's a yet in there. There are breaks on this juggernaut of fear. And then we come to another, another part of, um, of an insight into Habakkuk and where he is emotionally and mentally right now. Do you remember right at the start, he was, he was distressed and he was in anguish at what he saw around him and the degradation and the depravity of God's own people. And he was crying out and complaining. And he's been, he's been wrestling with God over all of this. Yet, he comes to resolution. He comes to a place where he is resolved. He's resolved the arguments with God, not in the sense that he's got his own way, or even that he has an answer that he can understand or fully appreciate. But he's come to a, a resolution. That there is something resolved that he has said, I understand this is what you're going to do, and I'm trusting you in this. And there's a resolution here in, in the sense of a decision that he's going to make. And these words in verse 17 to the end of the book of Habakkuk are beautiful. Many of us have taken this and tried to live this out because there's a bleakness again um, in what he anticipates happening. Listen to these words from verse 13. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, what? You can hear that juggernaut is moving down the road uh, and what we're seeing is destruction. We're seeing famine and hunger. We're seeing um, failed crops, herds diminished and destroyed, economic disaster, environmental disaster. We see it all coming. He knows that this may well happen. Yet, there's the break on this juggernaut. Yet, here comes the turning point. Not just I will wait patiently, as if he's resigned to something. Now it's even, um, even a starker contrast. All of that might be true, God, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice. I mean, I find this staggering. He can be facing the invasion of the, Babylon, the Babylonians with all the cruelty and um, horrors that that entails. You can see the sort of next few years panning out as disaster for the land and for the people. You can see all of that is likely to happen. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And the only reason we can see for that is what follows. I will be joyful in God, my saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. So he knows God to be the one who will save and he believes God will. He knows that God is sovereign over everything. If God can use the Babylonians, he, can, he is sovereign over everything. And he can bring his good purposes out of something that looks pretty hideous. So God is his saviour, God is sovereign, and he is strong. He is going to give uh, Habakkuk strength. I will be joyful in God, my saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. And then we get this lovely image. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. 
that sounds like something really victorious like we're hey we're at the top of the mountain it's it's going to be wonderful that's not actually um the life of a mountain deer i think or a mountain goat or, or those animals that have to scramble up because the higher you go the less um the more rocky it is the less stable the footing so i think this is far more likely to be saying that anticipating the hardship of the road ahead anticipating uh, the difficult terrain that he'll have to navigate in life for what lies ahead the rugged and uncertain terrain god will enable him to be sure-footed like a deer he'll be sustained by god's power and god's faithfulness and because of god he will be able to negotiate the, the narrow paths and the, the rocky outcrops he'll be able to live in that difficult place because of god so the wrestling is over and the place he comes to is a place of choice like jesus in the garden of the gethsemane there is wrestling there is questioning there is the really god does it have to be this way and then there is acceptance and there's trust however there is also fear and um, and the horror of what is to come and that's what i find so real about habakkuk he's not airbrushing life that he can see unfolding before him he's not denying the reality of the impending doom of uh, of the next few years or perhaps generations he doesn't know he knows the reality of what is about to happen he's not massaging it he's not self-medicating away things that are difficult but in that difficult moment when the wrestling match is over and he's exhausted himself he still has a choice to make if this is going to happen and it is terrifying what is about to happen he chooses instead of allowing the fear to paralyze him or to make him bitter or to send him running away from God, he chooses in that moment instead to place his hope in God and to choose to worship and choose to praise him. And I can only see that as a journey that he's been on right from the start where um, he is now in a place of confidence, whereas before he was, um, he was in a place of confusion and um, complaining. But he's been on this journey with God he's done this wrestling and he's finished up in a place where he knows he's not going to get his own way it's not going to be happy ever after just yet but he is able to trust God and this journey of faith brings him to a place of trust because he has to understand like us we have to understand that God loves and cares about this world even more than we do and one day he will deal with the evil of this world the brokenness of this world there are no easy answers in Habakkuk. We don't get a formula for how you can explain evil in the world, how you can live with it um, by intellectualizing it or arguing uh, around it. There aren't easy answers, but there is a clear recognition of who God is in that difficulty. And in this journey from complaining through to confidence in God, I think Habakkuk gives us an insight into what it looks like um, when, when he said earlier that the righteous will live by faith. God said the righteous will live by faith. And we see that in Habakkuk. He has now placed his faith in God. Tough times are ahead. It will be terrifying and hideous for a while. 
but he is going to trust in God. He will wait patiently and he will even rejoice. And that can only come about when he knows God. And he knows God to be the God who shows up on this grand worldwide scale. This God who, um, who when he shows up, the world knows about it. The signs and wonders are there to be seen. He knows this God who has acted in history and who can act again. And so he can say, though this, yet will I praise God. And I don't know if that helps to encourage us or simply sets the bar really high for us. But I know that many of us are facing challenges and difficulties. And I think looking at the story of Habakkuk the, uh, and what's written here, we're encouraged not to turn away from it, not to pretend it's not happening, but to take it directly to God. Yes, to complain or to, to shout in frustration, to wrestle with God over what's happening and over the injustices that we see or that we're experiencing. But to bring that to God in honesty, to wait patiently for God's reply, even to wrestle again, to question the answer that comes back, but to engage with God in the questioning. And we believe that as Jesus walks with us and has experienced um, the, same, the same experience of wrestling that we might go through, we know that um, we can also get to the point of being able to say, yet not my will, but yours. Because we know that God loves us, that Jesus will never leave us. By his spirit, he will be with us and at our side every step of the way. Even if, like mountain deer, we are, we are negotiating very tricky terrain in life. He is our strength. And we need to also get to a place of resolution to be able to trust him with that tricky terrain. So faith in troubled times is actually what we need. We need more of it, not, not less. It's not diminished by the troubles, but in fact, perhaps it's, it's actually a time of growth of our faith. Habakkuk found that to be true. And I pray that we will too.